1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, reading through verse 25. This is the word of the living God. Let's give attention to it as it's publicly read even now in your hearing this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to, those, those us, uh, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and, Gent- Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. This is the word of the living God. Let's pause and ask for his help as we consider it together even this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we now turn to your word and humble ourselves under it indeed, for your word is living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It does and indeed will discern the thoughts, motives, and intentions of our hearts even in this hour. And we pray that it would that you would instruct us by your Spirit, that you'd grant us your Spirit as you've promised us, that we would understand these things, that we would hear them and do them, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Many years ago, a man turned in his doctoral thesis and left the seminary for the pastorate. At the following commencement, he received his degree Upon returning home, his cook said to him, Well, now you are a doctor. When he agreed, she asked, Do you doctor folks? He said, Well, no, I'm not that kind of a doctor. She replied, Oh, you are one of those doctors who don't do nobody. That's just a quote. Don't do nobody any good. Talk about humbling a young theologian, but she was right. Within himself, he could do no one any good. But when Christ is proclaimed, when Christ is preached, it can do good for those who will hear. One of the problems we face in our world today is that many, not all, but many churches today who think they preach, aren't in fact doing none of the kind. We see it in our modern culture that this so-called preaching isn't that. It's not double talk to say that this preaching isn't preaching. It is not a confused sentence either. It is really an accurate picture of many, not all, but many churches in our modern world. One that wants, as it, as it seems, as it appears, that it wants everything to happen in their worship services, except this. Puppet shows and liturgical dances and, and fog machines and a host of other insane types of enterprises only press out and push aside the centrality of that which God says is that which saves sinners. It's usually some, some crazy lecture that amounts to nothing more than a 12-step program to holiness. I wish it were that simple. Rare is the sermon today that preaches Christ and Him crucified. Absent from pulpits today is the central message of the gospel. Everything else is in view but not Christ. There's another problem in the church. It's not just the preacher's problem, but it's also those in the pew because they don't want that, you see. 
Really, to just say it a different way, they don't want Christ. Sure, they come to church. They might even listen. But they are not really interested in the old story of hope, a crucified, resurrected, ascended Savior. Better music? Yeah, sure, no problem. Shorter prayers? These are all I've heard, by the way. This didn't come in a vacuum. Better music? Absolutely. Clamor for that. Shorter prayers? Absolutely. No problem. Shorter's good. Shorter sermons? That's even better, too. But frankly, it is really a sad indictment on the church. It is preaching that is real preaching that is the power of God for salvation. It is that which rescues lost people from their sin. It is that which confounds the arrogant and the foolish. It is that which converts lost people from darkness to life. It is that which encourages, rebukes, exhorts, and perseveres. It is in the plain preaching of Christ and Him crucified that rescues the most miserable of people and points them to the only one who can help them. And this is not just my opinion. It is the very opinion of the Apostle Paul. It is the very word of God itself that is rooted in preaching that is faithful to the text of the Bible that seeks to exalt Christ and give to sinners the only thing that they can possibly ever need. Why then do we remove that? Or downplay it. The question for us this morning, all of us, is that, is this how you see preaching? Do you see it this way? As you sit there in the chairs, even this morning. You see it as something you just got to get through. And then I can leave. And go do what I want. Do you understand that preaching is the most important thing you're going to hear this week? It is, indeed, the most important thing you are going to hear this week. And next week, and the week after that, and the week after that, on into eternity. This isn't a lecture. It isn't even an academic exercise. Preaching that is useful must preach Christ, because it is only Christ that can help you. I'd like to be able to help you with all of your struggles. Your elders in this church would love to be able to help you with all that ails you. And we can point you. We can help you. We can listen. We can do a lot. But ultimately, we have to point you to the one who can and will. It happens here. Behind this, this, this piece of wood in which the Savior seeks to help his people. He has ordained it. He's ordained preaching as the means to that end. But sadly, in the church today, people prefer money, other things. Do you really think that those things will rescue your soul? No, it is Christ and Him preached, crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, mediating, ministering, at, your, at, at God's right hand that will. If you see other ways to help your weary soul, the Apostle Paul is talking to you this morning. He's talking to you. He would warn you, friends, the word of the cross is indeed folly to those who are perishing. The preaching of the cross is folly. It's a waste of time. It's of no use. I'd rather do something else, anything else. It's folly to those who are lost and on their way to a Christless eternity. But to those who are being rescued, it is the very hope of God in Christ. You must seize it. You must seize the message of the cross each week. You must seize Christ preached and proclaimed every week from this pulpit. For really, I have one task. It's not all that hard, to be honest. And that is to give you Christ in every sermon. That's my job. From every text of the Bible, whether it's First Chronicles chapter 1 or First Corinthians chapter 1, my job is to give you Christ because He alone can save you. I can't save you, the elders can't save you, it is Christ. 
And if it's that important, and indeed it is an eternal matter, you must seize it. You must lay hold of it. You must benefit from it. The question really is, will you? For I can pray that for you, and I do, and I can't make you. I know someone who can, though. The Spirit of the living God who wrote this text and governs all that is said in the sermon, every word is able to cause you to hear Him as He is proclaimed. Paul is still dealing with matters that face the church. He's still dealing with divisions. And as we noted last week, it is a division that was rooted in loyalty to others and not Christ. And definitely not the cross of Christ is preached. It was a loyalty rooted in vain philosophies and the wisdom of this age. And the Corinthian church was enamored by these things. Very much the same way the Apostle Paul could have wrote this letter to the church in the 21st century, enamored with vain philosophies and worldly wisdom, and, but not, don't preach. Don't do that. The Corinthian church was enamored with these things, these, the words, the rhetoric, all of them, those things, without the cross proclaimed, is death to the hearers. But when Christ is preached and proclaimed, it is life. To those who can hear. And so I want to show you this morning that the preaching of the cross of Christ confuses the perishing and rescues the redeemed. I want to show you that Paul is teaching us here in these verses that the preaching of the cross of Christ confuses, befuddles, bewilders, brings scorn, contempt. I mean, I ran out of adjectives. It confuses the perishing and it rescues the redeemed. Two points as we consider these verses together. First, the folly of of the perishing and the hope of the rescued. The folly of the perishing and the hope of the rescued. Let's consider first the folly of the perishing. Before we begin even looking at this first point The temptation you're going to have as one who professes faith in Christ is to see this as really a preparatory to the second point, which is where you really uh, want to see yourself. But you need to resist that. You need to recognize, even as a Christian, that there's aspects to this matter that would apply to you and certainly does. It applies to me. It applies to you. We must hear those things. If we're going to see the preaching of the cross of Christ as central in this church and that which rescues us from not only hell, but carries us through our days and perseveres us to the end of those days. The folly of the perishing. There's a root problem that is given to us not directly in the passage, but is assumed in verse 18. Paul there says, For the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing. The root of those who are perishing is the same root problem from all, from, that applies to all of us. That each one of these that are perishing were born in sin. Their tendency, their nature indeed, is to, to reject these things. And to turn away from them, to not listen to them, to supplement them with all sorts of other things, but never the cross of Christ, never the gospel. It happens to all of us, and each one of us began our lives in precisely this manner. The matter of original sin. The horrible stain that has been cast upon every single image bearer that has ever lived, is living, will live, all due to the sin of our first parents in that garden. Put a different way, it is a matter of that which we have inherited from our first parents. You want to know why you sin? It's because you're a sinner. Because you have original sin dwelling in us. Our confession of faith so clearly teaches us in chapter 5, they being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed 
and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. Put a different way, those that are stained by original sin have no zeal or desire to hear the cross of Christ. For their hearts are hardened and their eyes are blind. And if you're sitting here this morning and you don't care about this, then it's difficult for me to even jump to the conclusion that you even know the Savior. But there's another problem. It's not just one that describes us as our nature. It is that which shows how we live. The matter of actual sin. The actual sin of rejecting the cross of Christ. Turning a deaf ear to that which is said from the pulpit. Turning a deaf ear to all that Christ extends and holds out for hope to a sinful dying world. It is through this corrupt nature that men sin. You turn on your TV and you watch the news and you, you wonder, don't you? Maybe I'm the only one. How is it that people like me, human beings, can, can murder their wife and son in cold blood? How can they do the atrocities that they do and the, the evil that they, they commit? And, and because they're sinners, that's why. At the end of the day, this is the reason. Their minds, their hearts, all of it is rooted, bathed in a sinful nature that expresses itself in actual behavior. Jesus in Matthew 15 says as much when he says that it's from the heart that all of these wicked, evil things spring. It's from the heart of man that's been corrupted and polluted that they reject then, therefore, the hope that comes through the preaching of the Word of God. It is indeed, as Paul puts it, it's folly to those who are perishing. They express it, or put a different way, the expression of this nature of individuals is demonstrated in the wicked actions and their wicked thoughts and in their rebellion against God and a blindness of mind and heart. And Paul presents that aspect of their condition, their folly, in this passage. The blindness of mind and heart, it's a statement of certainty. To this, the Apostle Paul speaks directly to the Corinthian church who were enamored with philosophy and wisdom, not rooted in the wisdom of God. He establishes the problem in a series of rhetorical questions. And they are, indeed, rhetorical questions. Where is the one who is wise, he says. You don't want to hear the preaching of the cross? Where's the wise? Show me where he is. Where's the scribe? It's interesting. He chose the the scribe there. These ones that would torture Jesus. Typically right after he would give a discourse or, or put a different way, preach the kingdom of God. Where is the scribe? The know it all. The theological genius of the group who won't hear the preaching of the cross. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? The Apostle Paul knows something about these debates because he engaged in them as he labored at Athens and at Mars Hill and he waged war against the philosophies of this world. All he did was give them exactly what he's saying here in this passage. Christ. And what was their response? Foolishness. Crucified Savior. Nonsense. Where is the wise, the scribe, the debater of this age, he asks. In reference to the very wisdom of God and how He has determined to do the things that He does, He makes them look silly. Now, we have seen these things in our lives. We have witnessed them indeed. We've probably heard expressions of people who would say things like, like, if God would just come down and sit on my couch, I'd believe him. No, you wouldn't. You won't listen to the preaching of the word of God. You won't listen to what it says. You won't listen to the cross of Christ proclaimed. You wouldn't listen to God if he came in all of his glory and sat on your couch and talked to you. Well, how do you know that? Because it happened. 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into time and space and he proclaimed the kingdom of God. He proclaimed them to his own and his own received him not and then they crucified him. Some of us have entered into silly debates and endless debates that seem to have no end and are designed only to further the unbelief of those who refuse to hear the very word of God as it's proclaimed. Some even live their lives as though there is no God. Professing to be wise, they become fools. We play this, this is played out in our leaders today as we witness them refusing to hear the plain teaching of Christ in the gospel. And they reject it because of their hard hearts, their blind eyes. They reject the God of the Bible, the gospel, and the truths of Scripture. And as a result, they suffer very much the due consequence of their error. And unless you're living under a rock, you see it every day in our country. But you see it in the church, too. So Paul appeals to these rhetorical questions to press home the point that these people are not all that wise at all. Debating, they get nowhere. Arguing, they accomplish nothing because they won't listen to the simple preaching of the cross of Christ. But he doesn't stop there. To make further his point, he, he demonstrates proofs from, his, proofs from history. As he goes on to say there, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Two groups of people he appeals to here. First, the Jews, the Jews who who regularly heard, now note this, the Jews who regularly heard Christ preached. That's, That's without dispute. Daily in the synagogue, daily in the streets, daily wherever Jesus was, he was proclaiming Christ, he was proclaiming his Father's kingdom, he was proclaiming the gospel, he was proclaiming himself, he was teaching and preaching the hope that every man has. And what do they want? Not that. No, no. Give us signs. Give us us something else. It's not enough. We need fireworks and we need miracles, which Jesus did do. And and we need other things to happen in in, in our midst. And if you do those things, then we'll believe you. And even when Jesus did give them signs, when he did perform miracles, and when he did raise the dead, and all of these hosts of things that he did do, they still didn't believe. And they crucified him. What did they want? They wanted flair. They wanted the fantastic. Have you ever asked yourself, really, why men, women, boys, girls... Flock to a Benny Hinn healing crusade? Because of course it's because Christ and him crucified is proclaimed. No, it's because something fantastic is going to happen. Well, supposedly. Something miraculous is going to occur. The churches today that endeavor to proclaim the simple hope of Christ are marginalized, empty, What does that say about the church? He appeals to the Jews. But he appeals to the Greeks as well. The Greeks who were obsessed with wisdom, very much the wisdom of the age. They found a crucified Christ to be nonsensical. You look back to Acts chapter 17, a passage I already have referenced, but now I want to look at a little further. Where Paul had dealings with people like this. In Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 16, there we read, Now while Paul was sitting, was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Sounds just like people today. You know, preach. I got other things to do. 
Mrs. Babbler have to say, wish to say. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities <laughs> because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Note that. He wasn't quibbling over some minor point of doctrine. He was preaching Christ. Christ, him crucified, him resurrected, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians, the foreigners who lived there, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Paul wasn't giving them something new. He was giving them the hope of the gospel that originated all the way back in the Garden of Eden. He was giving them Christ. Fast forward to verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead... They all repented, fell on their faces and tore their clothes, wept to heaven. No, mocked, mocked. Preaching invokes this from people. It either invokes a willingness to listen and hear the hope of Christ and Him crucified or mocking, scorn, rebuke, ridicule, rejection. Pick one. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they mocked. Some of the smartest people in the world are the dumbest people because they reject the hope of the cross and the gospel of Christ. Paul says it's foolishness to them. Who are the them? How does Paul describe those who would reject the hope of Christ preached? He describes them as those who are perishing. Not perished, Perishing. They're decaying moment by moment, day after day, more and more in their folly and their shame as they reject the hope of Christ proclaimed. The result of these individuals and the wisdom of this world leads to blindness of mind and heart. Paul appeals to words quoted from Isaiah 19. The wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. It's sarcasm. He's using it that way. As a foil to show that they're not all that wise at all. And nor are they discerning. For if they were, they would listen to Christ proclaimed. And they would heed it. Instead of mock it, ridicule it, reject it, turn a deaf ear to it. Act like they got other things to do. But it also leads not only to a decaying of soul and heart in this life. It leads to a horrible, horrible end. To an eternity separated from the comfortable presence of God. Because the preaching of the cross of Christ is folly to those who are perishing. This means that preaching Christ is an eternal issue. It has life and death in it. Every time Christ is faithfully proclaimed from pulpits wherever they may be, it is an eternal issue of weight that you cannot measure with any price tag or any measuring instrument. Paul understood this. All too well. When he gave that instruction to, that, to, to his, his friend, to his son in the faith, to Timothy, a young pastor, probably in his 30s, right before he was to leave this world, he says to Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. Shorthand for preach Christ and Him crucified. Preach the hope of the gospel to the people of God. Preach Christ to all who will listen. That's what he told them. And why and how does he set up that instruction there in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy? 
He sets it up by making reference to the fact that this is an eternal matter, an eternal issue. He says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. To those who will not listen, maybe some here right now in this room, maybe some here who see it as folly and unnecessary, something to get through, some matter in which it is foolishness to you who are perishing. Paul would shaken us, he would awaken us. It's not the eloquence of the man. It's not the, how smart they are. It's not how well they speak. It's the message. And if it's not Christ, then he's got nothing to say. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But for those of us who hear and can't hear, it is hope. It's not just hope for eternity. It's hope for life. Every day and every moment of our lives. The root of the rescued is the same, isn't it? For all of you who this morning know the Lord Jesus Christ, you came into this world the same way everybody else did. With a sin nature, with a propensity by nature to reject the God of heaven, to not hear the preaching of Christ and Him crucified, all of it, you entered this world. What's different about you then? You who were at one time totally depraved, like the fools described in the first point. You had a hard heart, a blind eye. You were deaf to the hope of the gospel. You were by nature objects of God's wrath. But you were rescued, elected unconditionally. God in His love and mercy rescued you from your lost condition. It was not a magic act. He employed means. He used other people. In fact, he used the foolishness of preaching to save you. The foolishness of it all. To confound the wisdom of men. That a sinner himself could stand in this place and proclaim the excellence of Christ and watch the Spirit of God do what no man can do. Save sinners. He did this particularly, of course, because preaching always accomplishes the goal of, that God has for it. Whether the church at Corinth heeded the words of the Apostle Paul or not, whether some listened and some didn't, It doesn't return void. It further hardens the fool in his foolishness or it awakens the sinner who needs it and causes them to respond to it. For some it's rejected, for others it's received. For the elect it saves. For the reprobate it condemns all the more. All this happens irresistibly to the very efforts of the Spirit and the grace of the cross and the preaching of the gospel is not resistible for the elect. It is the power of God for salvation. And it is He alone who rescues dead sinners. The Apostle Paul draws our attention to that even in the opening verse of the text when he says that to us who are being saved. It's interesting. He doesn't say to us who are saved. The construction here is very clear. It's in the passive present. It's a passive present participle. It's an ongoing action of the Spirit of God that through preaching week after week after week after week, the Spirit of God is rescuing sinners. Oh, but, I, but I made a profession of faith 25 years ago, so I don't need this anymore. Yes, you do. Paul says it is that which rescues you day after day, week after week, month after month. It's being done to you. 
by the labors of the Spirit, and you who belong to Him cannot resist it. It is that means by which He then uses to persevere the wise of the world who have been drawn to Him through the proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. It leads to perseverance. You want to persevere in the faith? You need to be in the seats here every Sunday morning and afternoon. By the way, I'm coming to that in a minute. To hear of Christ. Do you have too much God this week? When you go to the gas station and get gas, do you only put three bucks in it? Or do you fill your tank? This is the means that saves you, that rescues you, that helps you. It is that which is done on an ongoing basis. You need to hear it. I can sit at home and listen to the live stream. No. Preaching is more than listening to a two-dimensional voice over a speaker. You need to see it, too. It is that which God uses to persevere You, his people, the preaching of Christ and the cross perseveres you to the end. For he who perseveres to the end will be saved. The means that God does is scattered all over this passage is the preaching of Christ. Look how Paul describes it. He describes it as foolishness. It's a turn of a phrase, really. He's not picking on preaching. It's not a pejorative term. He's not saying, what a waste of time, it's a, but it's all we've got. To turn of the phrase, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, he says. And the way he is instituted, how he care for his church and rescue the hopeless, is foolishness. But it is, as Paul says it here, Even the foolishness of God is wiser than men. In the weakness of God, stronger than men. He's not saying that, that God is foolish. He's not saying that God is weak. He is saying that compared to what the world would do and their vain philosophies and ideas, this is indeed, from their point of view, to those who are perishing, this is silly. But it's the power of God for salvation. God did it this way. Why? So that no man may glory in his own accomplishments. No man may boast about that great sermon he preached. No, no. So that he alone would receive it all. He describes it as foolishness. He describes it as power. It is the power of God for salvation. It is the means God typically uses to bring sinners to himself. It is the means he uses to weed out the sheep from the goats. How many times in the ministry of Jesus did that occur? To the point where he even asked, are you going to leave me too? What was their response? Where would we go? You preach the words of life, my paraphrase. You have the hope of life. You have the words of life, they said. It is the power of God to rescue souls that are headed for hell. It is the means God typically uses to bring sinners to himself. It is the means he uses to weed out the sheep. It is the means he uses to persevere you to the very end. To absent yourself from the proclamation of the word of God and to supplant supplant it with every other thing, vice, Bible studies. Wow, you can't say that. I just did. As important as they are, useful as they may be, they don't come close to the preaching of the word of Christ and the cross from pulpits wherever they may be. What might the response be then to these things? Well, first, the Corinthian church, how would they respond? They're being corrected, aren't they? They're being rebuked. You're placing your trust in silliness. You're rallying around the wrong things. It'll lead to destruction. It'll lead to perish. It'll lead to an eternal fire. It'll lead to a horrible end. 
No, no. You need to hear about Christ and Him crucified. They were placing far too much emphasis on the philosophies of the day and the wisdom of rhetorical, rhetorically gifted men. It isn't that being rhetorically sound is a bad thing. We ought not prop up men who can't talk in the pulpits, who can't speak, who butcher the English language on a regular basis. No, no, that's not what he's getting at. We don't put our confidence in those things. We put our confidence in the message that is proclaimed, and if it's not Christ, then it's not worth anything. I don't care how well they said it. He is saying that they should be enamored by Christ and Him preached in the cross of Christ. Part of the problem that led to various factions was this one. They were not railing around the cross of Christ as proclaimed. Well, so much for the Corinthian church. I'm not the pastor of the Corinthian church, but I am the pastor here. My job, as I said earlier, is quite easy and hard. The temptation to come up here every Lord's Day and give you all kinds of other things that I know will tickle your ears and make you happy, it's real. Paul says, Bill, preach Christ. Preach Christ. That's what these people need to hear. They need to hear about the Savior. They need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear about the whole gospel of Christ. How it affects them and the way they live on a daily basis. and How it has uh, import into, into the way they raise their families. And into the way they, 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 they train their children. And how they love their wives and their husbands. How they interact in the community. All of it. You preach Christ. You give them Christ. In one sense, it's simple. The question, of course, is there needs to be people to hear it. Really good about the morning service. I don't know why the afternoon service isn't the same. I've always wondered that, and I don't think I'm alone. Because in both services, you hear Christ. You hear of him, he's given to you, he's presented, he's proclaimed. It is the power of God for salvation. Is that what's going to help you persevere in this wicked, rotten, horrible world? Why would you turn it down? Why would you walk away? Even if you could argue that it's not required in the Bible, which you can't argue, by the way. You can talk to me later about that. But why would you turn it down? Do you not want more of Christ? More of Him. As you sit there and you listen to these things, do you listen not only with your ears, but your mind and your heart? Some of you do, and I'm very encouraged by that. And you tell me about it too, which is encouraging on one sense, but also not completely necessary on another. Some of you don't. You have to wrestle with these issues. You can be like the Corinthian church and refuse to hear the cross of Christ and be like the foolish people and perish. Or you can hear the cross of Christ and live. You believe by faith that preaching is indeed the power of God for you. I know it doesn't make any sense to the normal, natural mind. Of course it doesn't. Because it came from God. It's the wisdom of God. It confuses the foolish and the smart people of the world, the wise, the philosophers, the intelligent, the geniuses, the PhDs. They're all confused by this. But those of you who know Christ and love Him, you're not confused at all, are you? There's no confusion. You understand. I need this in my life. I don't have preaching. I'm lost. I'm doomed. I need Christ. I need all of Him. I need to hear about Him. I need to see Him. I need to sing of Him. I need Him. Do you see it that way? Earlier you confessed, and I don't know if you confessed with your heart, but many of you used your lips because I heard it. Larger Catechism 160, what is required of those that hear the word preached? Required, not optional. No, it's just a man-made thing. Uh-huh. 
Go look up all the scripture proofs. Go back and read 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. Evaluate the ministry of Jesus when many did not listen. They didn't do any of these things. Where are they now? With tears, we ought to confess that they're in hell because they would not listen to the hope of Christ. What's required? It's required of those that hear the word priest that they attend upon it with diligence. I endeavor to give you as much information as I can give you during the week about what's coming up this Lord's Day. I know I have typos everywhere and have to be corrected. I get that. Attend to it with diligence and preparation and prayer. I give you a worship guide. I admit, not every week, but I endeavor to do it as often as I can. Do you use it? I'm not making a rule for you. Maybe you have other ways of preparing for worship every Lord's Day. Great, good. Share it with others. Encourage others to do the same. That they're ready to hear the word of God preached and Christ crucified proclaimed. You pray, not only for your own soul, but for the souls of others as they hear Christ and him proclaimed. You examine what you hear. Oh, he went to seminary. He must be right. You know, I'm not always right. I'm just a man. Do you examine it as the Bereans examined the words of the apostles? Do you receive it then, therefore, when it is examined and it's true? Do you receive it as the truth of God? Do you receive it with faith and love and meekness and readiness of mind? Note this, as the word of God. You see, in the minds of the Westminster Assembly and indeed in the minds of the Apostle Paul, the faithful proclamation of the Scriptures as is being done right this minute is indeed the Word of God. It's not infallible, nor is it inspired. But it is still His Word to you. Do you meditate on it? Now, I've got to tell you, I'm your pastor. I hear your conversations. I have them too. I'm just as guilty of this. Physician, heal thyself. You talk about the sermon with others? Are you put off when someone tries? One of the best ways to cement Christ and Him crucified is to talk about it. Talk about it as families. Dads with your children, moms, do it together. Make it fun, enjoyable, pleasant. But do it. You confer a bit, hide it in your hearts. You seek to bring forth fruit of it in your life. Every Lord's Day, I endeavor to give you Christ. I'm sure I fail. That I come up here with that goal, to preach Christ. It's the wisdom of God and the power of God for you. It's foolishness to everybody else. That you might be rescued and saved. This is the means that God has employed. Why? So that he might be glorified. Because it makes no sense to me how he could take a sinner and preach to other sinners and watch him rescue them through it. Preaching is indeed the wisdom of God. And through preaching, the minds of the boastful and wise and arrogant are confused and even hardened. Through preaching, the soul's of the elect are saved, and they continue to be saved. Persevered, driven forward. Through preaching, you're encouraged to persevere in the faith. It is the power of God for salvation. Not the philosophies of this world, the wise and the smart people who don't preach Christ crucified. I don't care what church they're pastoring. Therefore, four things. Think about, meditate on. Don't absent yourself from it. Don't. You're only hurting your soul. Hear the word of God insofar as you're able, unless providentially hindered. You have to wrestle with what that means. Be here. 
If you're not here, you're on vacation, you should be in a church. You're not on vacation from Christianity. Go somewhere where the gospel is proclaimed, Christ is preached. If you don't know where to go, ask me, and I'll help you find a place when you're on vacation. Second, and very much in line with this, seize every opportunity to hear the word of God preached. It's more important than your devotional life. I know, I know what you're thinking. I'm not saying don't have one. I'm saying if you can't have one, you better be here. Seize it. Take advantage of it. God gave it to you. It's a gift. Third, by faith believe that the preaching of Christ is indeed the power of God for you. It was for the Corinthians. It had an effect. It changed them in some way and somehow. The church of Thessalonica was commended for receiving the very preaching of the word as the word of God. And fourth and finally, discuss it. Meditate on it. Seek to bring forth fruit of it in your life. None of this is hard to read or understand. Much of it is hard to do. You know why it's hard to do? Because we're not doing it. The first step is always the hardest one. And so as we see and we understand that preaching really does confound the worldly wisdom and philosophies of our age, but it is that which rescues sinners. It should take a very high place in our lives, so much so that all we want to do is talk about our Lord as he is presented in the sermons that we hear every week. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and ask that you would seal these things to our minds and our hearts. We have a tendency to reject much. May we not. May we really believe by faith, knowing it is your spirit that attends to it, that preaching is indeed that which proclaims Christ, is that which indeed rescues sinners. How will they hear without a preacher? And so, Father, may you do that here. May we seize it, lay hold of it, meditate on it, confer with it. May we bring forth fruit of it in our lives. All for the glory of your name, who gave this gift to us, but also for the good of our souls, who are in desperate need of your help and strength. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.